is always a verb in the Bible, and it reminds us that God is constantly moving on your behalf and mine every day. He's never left you, will never forsake you. Christmas to me is the greatest story ever told. It is a remarkable story, but every story has a backstory, and Luke's narrative that we have, if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 1, Luke is the most prolific author of the New Testament behind Paul, and his story is no exception. The beloved physician uh, tells us that he gave a very thorough, in, thoroughly investigated historical, historical account of the greatest story ever told. Now, in verses 5 through 25 that we looked at last week, we were introduced to uh, John and his parents. John the Baptist's father was a priest named Zechariah. His mother, Elizabeth, they were both descendants of Aaron, the first high priest and brother to Moses. Now, here's what I didn't mention last week that has stuck with me ever since, though. John was, therefore, by lineage, one who was supposed to have been a priest. That was the hope of mom and dad. He's going to be a priest. Maybe your parents laid that trip on you at some point in time. Oh, that's my son, my daughter. They're going to be an attorney. They're going to be a doctor. They're going to be a lawyer. They're going to be a politician, whatever. Your parents may have had expectations for you like John the Baptist's parents did for him. But what I find scripturally is man's expectations seldom match God's. God had a different plan. John the Baptist would be not just a priest. Any old priest could do the work that the priests did, but he could be a prophet foretelling the coming of the Holy One of God, proclaiming it out in the desert. He was supposed to have been a priest. <laughs> God had a greater plan for him. I don't know what God's plan for your life is, but as you bow the knee to him and walk in humility and trust Jesus Christ with all of your heart and mind and soul and strength, he's going to reveal his perfect will to you. At many different times in my past, I thought, well, he's called me to be a firefighter. He's called me to be a physician. He's called me to be a motocross racer. He's called me to this. I was wrong about all of those things. Those were just steps to lead me to where he wanted me to be, which is a pastor and a teacher of his word. That's one of the few spiritual gifts I have. I am a pastor teacher by the will of God. That's all I am, but that is what I am. It's not what I do. It's who he has made me to be. You are a child of God. He's preparing you for what lies ahead. And I, can I tell you, there's nothing more important on the church's calendar than the fact that Jesus is coming again. And what he's called his church to do is prepare for that. And I feel like John the Baptist, the voice of one crying in the wilderness because I encourage passion in people, but I can't make them become passionate. I tell them to read the Word of God, but I can't make you read the Word of God. I tell you not to be obsessed with the things of the world in light of the coming of Jesus Christ, but I can't stop you from doing it. I can't stop you from being lukewarm or Laodicean or even displeasing in the Lord's eyes. But I, I'm asking you in Jesus' name this morning to open wide your heart this Christmas season and say, Jesus, would you just invade my heart again? Like you came in Bethlehem's manger, would you reveal yourself to me? You came to save wretched sinners like me, Lord. Speak, for your servant listens. He wants to put in you and I a passion and a fire 
that is unbelievable. And you're going to see that throughout these opening chapters of Luke, where God touched people, did miracles in, on, and through them, and, and stoked a fire in their hearts that no man could ever do. God wants to do that for us. And all it requires is openness. Are you willing to let go of the things of the world? Are you willing to let go of you, the flesh, the fleshly entertainments and things of this world? Verses 5 through 25, it was all about John. It was all about unmanaged expectations. Unfulfilled according to his parents, but fulfilled according to the word of God and the will of God. Now, what we have in verses 26 through 38, we're introduced to Mary and Joseph and reintroduced to this guy, this angel named Gabriel. This section details from a physician's standpoint the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And you say that, well, and a physician would say, that's impossible. That's right, with man. But all things are possible with God. He's a supernatural God. If He could create the universe, shouldn't be a problem to put a baby in a womb. And that's what He did. Jesus, fully God, yet fully man. The miracle of the incarnation impresses this physician named Luke, and he provides medical and supernatural details that none of the other Gospels do. I am so thankful for Luke. He is a historian without parallel. He is a physician who is absolutely overwhelmed by the miracles of God. Can I tell you, if your God is only a natural God, you've missed most of God. He's the God of the supernatural. That's what this text is all about. The world dismisses Christmas as the celebration of the holy day that the Son of God was born. It dismisses it because there are expectations that come with that. If you acknowledge that Christmas is about Jesus, we got to chuck the red guy with the white fur trim and his reindeer and sleigh. That's not in Scripture anywhere. If it's all about Jesus, we've got to come back to that. We become obsessed with presents and buying and commercialism. And yet the narrative before us today challenges us to rethink Christmas, to walk in peace instead of the chaos that the world is today. I want the peace of God to rule over my heart. He wants it to rule over your heart as well. Let's look then at verse 26. Verse 26, the time frame 6 to 7 B.C., we're not exactly sure, but in the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mm. The sixth month, verse 26, that is of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Gabriel was sent to tell Mary the news that she would give birth to, to the Messiah. Gabriel, there's a name for you, mighty man of God, mighty warrior of God, without parallel, valiant warrior and mighty man of God. He was, he was the angel that interpreted Daniel's dreams in Daniel chapter 8 and 9. 551 years before Jesus was born. Gabriel's an old guy. He had five centuries. He is timeless. He announced the birth of John the Baptist and now announces Jesus' birth. 
unless we be absolutely awestruck with these angelic beings that are majestic beyond words, Hebrews reminds us, are not all angels ministering spirits to those who are to inherit salvation? Literally, those who are inheriting salvation. That's our position. That's Hebrews 1.14. That's you and I. And he was sent to Nazareth. Hmm. What do you know about Nazareth? It was a small, rough town with a Roman outpost in the first century, and it had the associated reputation. In fact, you'll remember when Philip told Nathaniel about Jesus, uh, he said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? The village was rather despised by the Jews because of its Roman character and, and reputation. It was about 15 miles west of the southern tip of the Lake of Galilee up in the Judean hills. In other words, Jesus came from a rough neighborhood with a bad reputation. What humble circumstances. You would have thought he'd have been born in the palace of a king. He was the son of God, king of kings, lord of lords. Jesus brought him to a rough neighborhood in a small and insignificant town that was a Roman outpost. It, it would be like you saying that you came from the roughest parts of South L.A. or parts of, of Detroit or the west side of Manhattan or Hell's Kitchen or the Bowery or the Bronx or, quite frankly, any other place in New York City. Many of those places have reputations and not good ones. Nazareth was where Jesus grew up, and they always assumed, especially as critics, well, that's obviously where he was born, so he couldn't be the Messiah. He was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but they never asked him, where were you born? They call you the Nazarene, but that's where you grew up, but that's not where, where were you born? If he'd have told him, if they'd have asked the question, they would have had more assurance that he was indeed the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh. It's kind of like me. People ask me, where are you from? And I said, you know, I've lived in this state since 1961. I got antifreeze in my veins. I love the cold. I love this place. I love the mountains. And they assume, well, he's from Colorado. I was born in New York City. New York City? Can anything good come from New York City? Not Salsa, but people come from there. <laughs> Best part of New York is seeing it in the rearview mirror. Uh, it's a great place to have been from, and I'm glad that I had the chance to ra be raised here. The Gabriel then in verse 27, it says, uh, appears to a virgin. The Greek word is parthenos. It means virgin it means only virgin. It never means anything else. Luke is very specific in his language. He doesn't want you to think this is any old chick. A lot of critics used to go back to the Hebrew text uh, of Isaiah 7.14. It says, a woman will be with child. And the Hebrew word is alma, which means any girl of, of marriageable age, which in Hebrew thought would have been any time from her first menstrual cycle. Ideally, she should be married by the time she's 20. That has led some commentators to feel, well, maybe Mary was like 13, 14 years old. Well, can I tell you something? Back in the old days, 
women used to come into their period a lot older in life than they do today. Typically, in Elizabethan English, it was after the age of 17. So while commentators may have led you to believe that she could have been perhaps 12, 13, 14 years of age, that is unlikely. The Jews who, if, if, if history holds true, came into the Jewish women, came into their period about 17 to 18 years of age, she was probably 17 to 20 years old. Still an amazing thing for her, but Isaiah 7.14 said, The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child. If it was just a woman of marriageable age, it wouldn't have been much of a sign or a miracle. Well, people have babies all the time. But if it is a virgin, and that, by the way, is how the Greek version of the Old Testament interprets that, parthenos. So Luke uses that word because he wants you to know this is supernatural. Modern medicine knows nothing about virgins being able to have babies. But that took place. And he shall be called according to Emmanuel, or according to Isaiah 7.14, Emmanuel, which is God with us. Jesus is God in flesh. He's more than a carpenter. He's not just a prophet. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the heir of David's throne. But Emmanuel means when he walked the earth, that was God walking this earth with us. Jesus has since gone back to heaven, but can I tell you, he still walks with us today by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. What a promise that we stand on then. She was, it says in verse 27, pledged to be married. Uh, what that means is that once she was of marriageable age, they would enter into a betrothal period where typically the man would make a residence for his wife. Often it was attached to his father's house. And during that, oh, often a year-long betrothal period, they were considered married, but they could have no sex and it could only be dissolved by a, a certificate of divorce. Betrothal was nothing like the engagement period we have today where, well, maybe we're going to get married, maybe we won't. No, 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 back then betrothal, <laughs> that was a serious, serious matter. In fact, to break that through infidelity was punishable by death. By death. You know the groom could have come for his bride at any given time after he had prepared a place for her to live. In his father's house, he would attach an addition, and then he could come any point in time after that. Just like Jesus can come back any time at all for his bride. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, 1 to 3? Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. For in my Father's house are many additions, many rooms, many literally dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I am going there to prepare a place for you. You're the bride of Christ. And when that is completed, we are in the betrothal period. When your dwelling is completed, Jesus said, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you so that where I am, you may be also. That's what Jesus has been doing for 2,000 years, preparing dwelling places for you and I. And as soon as that's done, in the perfection of God's timing, Jesus is coming back for his church. 
to me the best news. You, you remember the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. It's a fairly long text, but it gives us insight as to this whole marriage and betrothal and bridegroom going away thing and coming back. It says in Matthew 25, verse 1, At that time, the, Jesus speaking, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. Well, what do you do after about 15 minutes without oil? Your lamp goes out. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out unexpectedly, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those that sell oil. And buy some for yourselves. But while they were away to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. When Jesus comes back, the bridegroom of the church, will the church be ready? Oil is often used in Scripture emblematic of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the best way to prepare for Jesus' second coming is to be filled with His Holy Spirit. Not just halfway, not just three quarters, but filled to overflowing. Didn't Paul say in writing the Ephesians, don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess, but rather be continuously continued to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled to overflowing, and out of that overflow, you've got something to minister to other people. Otherwise, all you've got is the world in your soul. Jesus died to replace those carnal interests with the interests of God. That's why he has filled us with his Holy Spirit. The virgins who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet, and that door was shut. Later, the others came, sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. You chose not to be prepared for the coming of the Savior. You chose not to be ready for the second coming of Jesus Christ. You chose not to be ready for this wedding banquet. That was your choice. Jesus says, I'm simply honoring your choice. I don't know you. You don't know me, and your actions prove it. You don't talk about me. You don't think about me. You don't share your faith. You don't read the Word of God. You don't worship. You observe. You don't participate. You're a spectator. I don't know you, and it's obvious you don't know me. That's sobering. That is sobering when Jesus told this parable. Verse 13, therefore, keep watch. Keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour that is of Jesus' coming. The parables, it, it's not about having enough oil to see you through a power outage. That's not what this is about. Yeah, I should go out and buy a hurricane lamp and plenty of oil to go with it because the power could go out. And you're, you're, you're missing the whole parable. It's about the coming, being prepared for the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It means anticipating. It means living in light of it. It means being diligent about the pursuit of your faith until Christ comes back. Oil, as I said in Scripture, is often uh, emblematic of the person of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who prepares us for the second coming. So be filled with the Holy Spirit. Make that your life's endeavor. Whatever else you do for a living, that's not your calling. That's your ministry. That's what you do. It's not who you are. 
That just puts beans and weenies on your family. That may be your place of ministry, but that's not your calling. You're called to be a spirit-filled, on-fire, zealous Christian until he comes back. That's what you're called to. So when I ask you who you are, you need to tell me you're a child of God filled with the Holy Spirit and pursuing the things of God's kingdom. Because I don't care what you do for a living. That just puts beans and weenies on your table. That's not who you are. That's what you do. Christians should be busy about his business. So be spirit-filled because we are in this betrothal period and he could come back at any time at all. Look at what the angel says uh, to Mary in verse 28 of Luke chapter 1. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Common Greek greeting, the most common one, kyre. It means to be be happy or, or cheerful. It, it was the most common greeting in Koine Greek. It, it, it's kind of like us saying, hey, or hi, or hello, or yo, or what's up? Depending on how old you are and how culturally relevant you are, I'm old and I know nothing of cultural relevance, uh, but I am wise enough to know that I know nothing about that whatsoever. So my common greeting to you is generally, hi. Boring, yeah. Old, yeah. But a common greeting. Here's the crux of the matter, though. It's not the greeting so much as do you know that you're highly favored? Verse 28, feel free to underline that, highlight that. Oh, I didn't bring a highlighter, Pastor Jim. You're in sin. You need to bring a highlighter. There's some things that just need to stand out for you. Highlighters allow you to go back as you're flipping through the pages of your Bible and go, whoa, that's really important. That's really important. So feel free to underline that, highlight that. Do we believe that we are highly favored? Do we, verse 28, do we believe the Lord is with us? Do we believe, do we really believe that where two or more are gathered in His name, He's right there in the midst of us? Do we believe that? Or do we just go through the motions, church like usual, listen to the band sing the songs while we observe and critique? Or do we participate? Do we enter in? Because the, the crux of the matter here for the church is not entertainment. What we want to do is touch the hem of His garment. As long as we're together, we want to press in until we find Jesus and have our deepest needs met. I believe we are highly favored. I believe with all of my heart, based on his word, that Jesus is with us. Wasn't he prophesied his name would be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. I don't want my sins to stand in the way of my relationship with God. So Jesus, once I accepted Him as Lord and Savior, washed away my sins. He removed that barrier that stood between me and a holy God. I was unholy. He was holy. What Jesus did was bridge the gap. He washed away all of my sins. His blood cleanses me. Do I believe that Jesus is right here, right with us this morning, searching every heart in this room? Yes. Yes, there is nothing in your heart that's hidden from him in the least. He reads you and I like an open book, and he loves you. That's why we should pursue the things of the kingdom, because the king is coming soon. You know, as I look at that, that, that wording there, Mary was highly favored. 
I began to, I just couldn't get off of that. Seems to sum up the whole passage here. The whole passage before seems to speak of favor. God's grace poured out. That's what the, the coming of the Lord Jesus was all about in Bethlehem's manger. There are, and you might want to take this down if you're a note taker, there was at least eight reasons that I could think of why Mary was highly favored. Highly, you might want to write these down. Number one, she was highly favored because the Lord is with you. The angel told her, cool, he is with me. I'm highly favored, verse 28. And then secondly, she will have a child in verse 31, he promises. She's been blessed by God with the child that she has been praying for, no doubt. Thirdly, she's blessed because her baby will be called the son of the most high, verse 32, that first half there. Wow. What that means is verse 4, her baby will be the Messiah the heir to David's throne forever. Verses 32 through 33 tell us that. And fifthly, she is blessed and highly favored because this is not just going to be the birth of a baby. It's going to be the most supernatural birth of any child ever born. It'll be supernatural. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, verse 35 says. You, you, you say you want to see the supernatural in your life? Yeah, you want to get pregnant at 90, like Sarah's uh, being married to Abraham in the Old Testament? You want to get pregnant at 90? Uh, I'm not sure I want the supernatural that bad. Maybe a different form. Maybe I could win the lottery. I mean, just saying. You sure you want the supernatural in your life? Are you prepared for it? It may, it may supernaturally come upon you in ways you did not anticipate. I want God with all of my heart and mind and soul and strength. He is supernatural, and I want His way with me. I want His perfect will more than I want life itself. His perfect will. Sixthly, she is blessed and the most highly favored because, it says in verse 35, her child will be called the Son of God. What privilege. Seventh, Mary will be given a sign. What, what, what is that? It's simply a confirmation. You and I need that from time to time, don't we? When God says or promises some things, you go, wow, I, I'm just blown away. Lord, I'm asking for the impossible, but I believe you're the God of the impossible. But sometimes you just need a little confirmation. God, I just need to know that this is absolutely you and not me. Sometimes we mistake the will of God because we want something so bad. God, I know it's your will for me that I marry so-and-so, or I know this job is your will for me, Lord, because that's what I want really bad. No, that's what your flesh really wants really bad. That may not be what God has for you. This sign would simply be this, Elizabeth, Mary's aged relative. Understand the Greek doesn't have terms for aunt and uncle or cousin or first, second, or third. They don't have that terminology. In the Greek, it's simply their relative. So we don't know what their relationship between Mary and Elizabeth was. But this aged relative of yours, Elizabeth, is going to have a baby too in her old age. That's what the angel promised in verse 36. She's getting the confirmation that Mary needs. Now, according to Jewish culture, that would put Elizabeth something over 50 years of age. You could not be considered an elder or an eldress, if we can use that term, in Jewish society until you were somewhere past the age of 50. So this 50-plus-year-old woman is going to give birth 
to a baby, and in that culture, it would have been seen as totally supernatural. There's an eighth reason that Mary was highly favored. She was favored with the gift of amazing faith. And I see that in verse 38 where she says, whatever God's perfect will for me is, I embrace that. May it be to me as you have said. That's amazing faith. It's going to happen. I believe it. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The theme of this whole section here that we have before us today, verses 26 through 38, it's all about being highly favored. You are too. I'm not saying you're going to give virgin birth to the Son of God. That's not the version of highly favored that you and I get. We are highly favored for at least, again, another eight reasons that I can think of off the top of my head. First of all, you and I are highly favored because we live this side of the cross of Jesus Christ instead of before the cross living under the law that condemned in the Jewish ritual and endless legalism and stuff you had to go through. I praise Jesus. He fulfilled all of that for us. And I live this side of the cross in freedom, in freedom. We are secondly highly favored because we are loved. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You and I by nature are not lovable. It may have been the reason your spouse was attracted to you and you called it love, but God's love is a whole different issue, a whole different level. God loved us. Of course, the Greek term is agape. It's an act of the will. We have not always been lovable, but God has always loved us. He does today. He could not love you more than He does right here and right now, and He will not ever love you less. We are highly favored. Thirdly, we are highly favored because we're forgiven. All of your sins, all of your sins. Aren't you glad that you're not just forgiven the sins that you remember? Well, Lord, I remember when I was five, I sinned. Oh, I lied to my parents, or I, I took this, you know, and did my brother wrong, whacked him in the head. Or you know, if you couldn't, you can't remember 1% of the sins you've committed. You're not 1%. How convenient we let those escape from our memory. But when we came to Jesus Christ in humility and accepted him as our personal Lord and Savior, he washed away all of your sins, past, present, and future, the sins you have forgotten, but your spouse has not. God has forgiven them all. Fourthly, I think that we are highly favored because you and I are called into a specific role in ministry. Every single man, woman, and child in the kingdom of God has a specific place on the wall building up the kingdom of God. Every one of us. How do I know that? It says in 1 Peter 2, 9, if we could pull that up, you are, doesn't say going to be, doesn't say you got to go to seminary or Bible college. It says you are right here, right now, a chosen people. I'm highly favored. A royal priesthood. Wow. A priesthood? I'm highly favored. A holy nation. That's how God sees you and I, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see you according to your miserable Christian performance. He sees you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. You are holy. God's 
special possession. That's what makes you highly favored as Mary was. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You and I are not here on earth to see how much pleasure we can indulge ourselves in. Your hobbies often will stand in the way of your relationship with Jesus Christ. The things of this world, your obsession with sports or whatever, these things cannot be allowed to push Jesus Christ out of our near view. Fifthly, I found that we are highly favored because we've received mercy. You know what justice is? Getting what you deserve. Never ask God's justice for yourself. You always want to pray for somebody else. God, I pray that you, in your justice you would call them to account. But justice is getting what you deserve, and I don't want that. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. We're highly favored because we have God's mercy. Grace is like the icing on the cake. Grace is getting what you never deserved. And that is an eternal kingdom and a glorious heavenly future. Big difference between justice, mercy, and grace. Peter says, once you were not a people, but now you are a, the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but because of Jesus Christ, His coming, His death and burial and resurrection, you have now received mercy. Thank you, Jesus. I am highly favored. Sixthly, you are highly favored because we have a hope that has nothing to do with this world. Romans 15, 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So many promises given throughout the, the apostolic letters to the churches. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Now these three things he, he says remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Because God loves you, you are highly favored. 2 Corinthians 1.10, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us on Him. We have set our hope that He will continue to deliver us. You are imperishable until Jesus decides to call you home. You're indestructible. You just keep living for Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 4, Paul said, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. That hope is Jesus Christ. Your personal relationship with Him is what you and I must be investing in these last days, or we have more in common with the five virgins that brought no oil while they were waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. You need to be investing in the kingdom of God. You need to be pouring yourself in, into God's will for your life. You need to be free from the distractions of this world. Because Jesus is coming again. Paul would write the church at Colossae in Colossians 1.27, To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of, of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our glory's coming. It's not found in this world. I don't care if I'm a success in this world or not. I want to be a success in God's eyes. Paul would write, Timothy, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Savior of Jesus Christ, our hope. 
we are highly favored. In, in writing to Titus, he said, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the church, that Jesus is coming soon. I don't know how much worse the planetary situation has to become, but the geopolitical situation convinces me that His coming is nearer now than when we first believed. I mean, I don't know when they're going to start lobbing nukes. I think only the hand of God is holding that back. But someday He's going to snatch His church off the face of the earth before the absolute horrendous judgments of God fall in the book of Revelation. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because it is biblical. God has not appointed us under wrath. Thank you, Jesus. I am highly favored. There is a seventh reason that we too are highly favored. We have a Savior, somebody who's paid the price for all of our sins. We have a Savior, and He is coming soon. And the eighth reason I can think of why you and I are highly favored is this. The best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. You want some really good news? Read Revelation 19 through 22 sometime. You're going to see what your future holds if you're a child of God. If you're one of those five virgins who brought some oil with them and are waiting on the Lord by the power of His Holy Spirit, there is a world awaiting for you you can't even imagine. Read those closing chapters of Revelation sometime. Streets of gold, not that I care anything about gold, but heaven is a wonderful place, a wonderful place. Let me call your attention back to Luke 1 and verse 29. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. She wasn't sure, how is it that I'm highly favored? There's a lot I don't understand here. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. She apparently was a young woman who had a great faith in God and His promises. You will be, verse 31, with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. In Greek, it is pronounced Iesus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua or Yehoshua, sometimes shortened to Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves. That's what God desires to do. But think about this for a second. Why would you give a Greek name to a Jewish baby? He came to save Jews and Gentiles like you and I. That's why he was given the name. He's the Savior of the world. Didn't Isaiah, wasn't it repeated in Matthew that Jesus would be a light to the Gentiles? Absolutely. He will be great, verse 32 says, he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. That's a messianic title. Jesus will be the Messiah. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Both Mary and Joseph were from the line of David, who came from the tribe of Judah. They weren't priests. Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, not Levi. That's a whole different sermon for a different time. But they came through two different sons of David. Joseph was the legal lineage through whom Jesus was born uh, uh, through Solomon, David's immediate son. Mary comes through David's son, Nathan. That's recorded for us in Luke chapter 3. Uh, we'll get to that here in a little while. The problem was this. Joseph's line from David was cursed. 
in Jeremiah 22, God himself said, let the entire line of David through Jeconiah be cursed. Well, that's the very line that Joseph came through. So how is God going to get around his curse? Certainly the Messiah can't be born through a line that is cursed. Thus Mary comes into it. Her baby is born of the Holy Spirit. Her line did not come through Solomon. It came through Nathan, a, a small detail often overlooked by the Jewish religious establishment. In any sense of the word, Jesus was going to legitimately be called the son of David. He is the Messiah. I want you to look at verse 33 for, for just a second. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. I love that Christmas anthem, Messiah, written by George Frederick Handel a long time ago. The words uh, came out of Isaiah 9 and verses 6 and 7. For unto us, for unto us a child is born. You remember Handel's Messiah. I love that piece. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. My heart cries out, come, Lord Jesus. We live in such an age of corruption it's too easy for us to attempt to put our hope in political systems or political parties or that somehow or another the world's going to get better instead of worse. That's hope misplaced. Our hope is in the second coming of Jesus Christ when he establishes his kingdom. Only then will there be righteousness that reigns over all of the nations of the earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In verse 34, how will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? She wasn't a medical school student, but she did know that, you know, typically it's tough for virgins to have kids. Good news you've given me, Mr. Angel, but I, I, don't, I don't understand. I don't understand. She is humble as she asks this question of the angel. She doesn't seem surprised that the Messiah was to come. She seems surprised that she was going to be the Messiah's mother. Since she was a virgin, literally, she says, how can this be since I don't know a man? I haven't known a man, sexually speaking. But, and, the, and here the angel, he doesn't rebuke her as he had rebuked John the Baptist, Father Zechariah, back there in verse 20. It indicates that Mary didn't doubt the way Zechariah had. She doesn't doubt the angel's words. She merely wants to know how is such an event going to be accomplished? I, 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 don't, I don't understand. Mary's question was logical. You know, I, I simply don't understand. She asked basically the same question Zechariah had back in verse 18, but his question was anchored in skeptical disbelief. Oh, yeah, sure, right. That's going to happen. Her question was humble. It was asked in wonder, and it came through her awe-inspired faith in the living God. She was a woman of formidable faith. She, she could have married any time after a menstrual cycle, but as I said, that didn't come till much later in ancient Jewish society. Verse 35, the angel answered her, well, this is how it's going to come to pass. 
the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Literally, will cover you like a cloud. Remember the cloud that came upon Mount Sinai when God came down and visited with Moses and the 70 elders? The cloud, the Shekinah glory of God in, in the temple, the cloud that was there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and as a possible, it, it's the visible manifestation of God's glory and presence. And that's what the angel says to her. God is going to overshadow you like the cloud in the Old Testament. Like the cloud would descend upon your son at the Mount of Transfiguration, God's going to overshadow you, if you will, as he had done miracles when he overshadowed Moses and the others in the Old Testament. He was, he was going to do a unique and singular work in the, in the life of Mary. And notice what he says. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The conception was going to be the work of the Holy Spirit, not man. Can I tell you this? New birth is always an act of God's Holy Spirit. If you're not open to the Holy Spirit, you can't be born again. If you not, are not open to the supernatural, it, you should understand, I'm highly favored, but because of that, God wants to do a supernatural work in me, not a natural one. A supernatural work. But are you open? Can I tell you, most of Christendom today is not open. It's not open to God. It's not open to His Holy Spirit. It's got too much of the world in them to enjoy the presence of the living God. God has called us out of the world. The separation is what's denoted in the word holy. If you want to be a holy Christian, you must separate yourselves from thinking like the world does. It's infecting and invading the church. The vast majority of the church feels that, that sex outside of marriage is okay. The church statistically now feels that it's okay to live in sin. The church today, by majority across all denominations, believes that a homosexual relationship is perfectly fine. It flies in the face of the Word of God, but the church has convinced itself that, well, that's okay. It's not okay. It never has been. Regardless of how you feel about these issues, what is more important is how God feels about these issues. Don't be a man pleaser. Don't join in to get along, you know, go along to get along. You're not called to get along with the world. You're God's representative here. Jesus becoming and taking upon himself human flesh is an amazing miracle. From conception, Jesus was fully God and, and fully man. You think about the in, incarnation, which means Jesus in flesh. Incarnation is, is a Latin word, but it means incarnas in, in flesh. As soon as man sinned in the Garden of Eden, the incarnation became a necessity. It had to happen. Here's why. God is spirit. Those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. How do you hang a spirit on a cross to pay for the sins of mankind. You can't. It's like driving a nail through a cloud. You can't do it. So Jesus had to put on human flesh, not only to identify with us, not only to be tested and tempted in all ways just as we are, but he came so his flesh could be nailed on the cross to pay the price that your sins and mine deserved. By his stripes, we are healed Believe that with all of your heart. 
No spirit could be nailed to a cross. God had to become a man to identify with us, yet remain without sin to bear our sins upon himself, to die for our sins, be raised from the dead forever, and he's coming again. To me, the, the best news of all, and the final confirmation is found in verse 38 there. Oh, 36, excuse me. For even Elizabeth, your relative, was she an aunt? Was she a, a cousin? Doesn't We don't know. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she was said to be barren, is now in her sixth month. So Jesus and John the Baptist are only going to be about six months apart in age, uh, and which has led some commentators to suggest that Jesus and John the Baptist were first cousins. Well, that's a possibility, but the text doesn't declare it dogmatically. Now, everybody at this point in time in the conversation except Gabriel has got to be going, this is mind-blowing. This has never happened before in, in the course of human history. A virgin birth, the Messiah, he's come at last. He came in such a fashion, it seems impossible. <laughs> so the angel tells her in verse 37, for nothing is impossible with God. Repeat that with me, please. For nothing is impossible with God. There's your second and last highlighter passage for the morning. You and I face often impossible things in this life where we don't have the answer. The medical arts can do nothing about your situation. The world offers no hope. Where do you turn? The God of all hope. With God, nothing is impossible. But do you have the faith to believe that? Do you have the faith to believe, because I'm highly favored, God will do the miraculous on my behalf? He will move powerfully and supernaturally in, on, and through me. Do you believe that? I see those kind of miracles happen all the time. The latest one to happen to me is my kid brother called me the other day, and he'd been without a job for about six months. He's 63, but he's an undegreed engineer working in the aerospace industry outside of Atlanta, Georgia. And it had been hard, hard with no income at all for six months. We weren't sure if they were going to lose the house or what, how this was going to pan out. And I, I told him at the time, I said, well, I'm going to pray that God moves you here to Colorado Springs. I could use a best friend. I love my kid brother. He was the first one that I ever had the opportunity to win to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he and I have had a, a bond that goes back 50 years now. We're closer than two brothers ever could be. I love him. And I said, Jan, I'm sorry. I'm going to be praying that if it is God's perfect will that he supernaturally open a way for you. He called me yesterday and said, guess what? There's some aerospace firm up north end of town that just offered me a job. And they're offering me more than I made. And they're, and they're paying all of my moving expenses. I'm going, What? And he said, I am highly favored. <laughs> That's right. But do you have the faith to believe that applies to you? Or is it just a story played out by other people who have faith? God wants to do the miraculous and the supernatural in your life. Don't hinder him. Believe him. Believe in who he is and what he's able to do. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, come invade my heart afresh. Lead, guide, and direct me in ways that are not natural, but supernatural, Lord. Not explainable by natural means. Things that defy explanation. All that's required is our faith. Indeed, like Psalm 77 said that I quoted last week, our God is a God who performs miracles. But you have to believe that for yourself. 
No one had heard from God since the time of Malachi, 440 years before Jesus Christ. But when God was ready, he would speak again. In fact, Hebrews tells us, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. How, how do you respond to, how you respond to good news? It kind of depends on how much you believe in the supernatural. We have settled for a natural Christian experience. And that explains why you haven't heard from God in a long time. How come he, I don't get the dreams and visions that so-and-so gets, Lord? How come I don't see the miraculous in my life? Are you exercising your faith? Are you believing God for the supernatural? Do you believe that God can do anything? That's what the angel said, verse 37. Nothing is impossible with God. But we've put God in a box and said, oh, that's for other people. That's not for me. That's for other people. No, no. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You, you yourself are highly favored. All things are possible with God. The mistake we make is, is we tend to think in the natural because that's what we're surrounded by. B.F. Skinner had it right, the behavioral uh, psychologist of many, many years ago. You are a product of your environment. You put yourself in the ways of the world, the oversight of the world, the things of this world, the opportunities of this world, the sports of this world, the hobbies of this world. Guess what? The world will suck you up. And you too can be a worthless Christian, lukewarm in God's sight and ready to be vomited out of the mouth of Jesus as Jesus told the church at Laodicea that was lukewarm. It's your choice, really. It's your choice. And God, can I tell you this? I'm just going to lay this on your table. God will honor whatever choice you make, stupid or not. Make good choices. Choose God, not the world. This world is passing away, if you haven't noticed. And it's going to go away with a loud bang someday. Christmas is supernatural. It's a celebration of the supernatural, this singular, miraculous, supernatural birth of Christ. We serve a supernatural God. Life is more than what you see with your eyes or rationalize in your mind or perceive with your conscience. These last days, you're going to have to think outside the box. You're going to have to think God. You're going to have to think miracles. You're going to have to think supernatural, or we're going to miss God completely. Many will these last days. Don't you be one of them, please, in Jesus' name. I don't want to show up in heaven one day going, hey, we're so-and-so. I thought they were a part of the church. I thought they loved you. And Jesus said, I never knew them. Just because they went to your church, Jim, doesn't assure their place in heaven. Hmm. Being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in my garage makes you a motorcycle. It just means you're sitting in my garage. It's not church that saves you. It's Jesus Christ, and that's what Christmas is all about. Do you know him? He's, your, he's the Lord and Savior of the world, but have you opened up your heart and said, Lord, take away all of my priorities and put all of yours in here? That's what Christmas is all about, surrender to a miraculous and supernatural God. Let's keep Jesus central to the story, please. His rightful place in history really in an age that is desperately trying to forget God. That's the world situation around us today. It's not happy holidays. There's only one holiday, and it's a holy day. 
celebrating the day that Christ was born. It's Merry Christmas. So when people give you that nonsense about happy Kwanzaa or happy Hanukkah, whatever, else, go, no, it's about Jesus. Called Christmas for a reason. It's not called Hanukkah-mus or Kwanda-mus. That's not what it's called. It's called Christmas because it's all about who? Christ. Just makes sense? Let's keep him central. Let's not kick Jesus out of his own birthday party. Good grief. That's the day he was born. Miraculous, supernatural event. Let's stand and close in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, I love you with all of my heart, and I desire that my brothers and sisters here gathered would do the same. We are a people hindered by the world, hindered by the weakness of our flesh and our own fleshly wants and desires and nonsense like that. What you called us to do is come and die. Die to the world, die to the flesh, and embrace the Christ, your Son. So, Jesus, would you make our hearts your home once again? Forgive us our tendency toward carnality. Deliver us from it. That's why you came. You came to give us hope and our lives meaning and purpose, but that only happens to the extent that we submit and surrender in humility to you. Jesus, you are the Son of God. My heart cries out, come quickly for your church I want to be ready like the five virgins were who brought some oil with them. I want to tackle these last days by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I want to let my light so shine before you that people see my good deeds and give you glory and honor and praise these last days. Into your hands we commit ourselves. Bless us, Father, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. God is good.